Hey everybody, this is Volts for January 27th, 2023, on the abuse and proper use of climate models. I'm your host, David Roberts. Everyone who's followed climate change for any length of time is familiar with the central role that complex mathematical models play in climate science and politics. Models give us predictions about how much the Earth's atmosphere will warm and how much it will cost to prevent or adapt to that warming. British researcher Erica Thompson has been thinking about the uses and misuses of mathematical modeling for years, and she has just come out with an absorbing and thought-provoking new book on the subject called Escape from Model Land, How Mathematical Models Can Lead Us Astray and What We Can Do About It. More than anything, it is an extended plea for epistemological humility, a proper appreciation of the intrinsic limitations of modeling, the deep uncertainties that can never be eliminated, and the ineradicable role of human judgment in interpreting model results and applying them to the real world. As Volt's listeners know, my favorite kind of book takes a set of my vague intuitions and theories and lays them out in a cogent, well-researched argument. One does love having one's priors confirmed. I wrote critiques of climate modeling at Vox and even way back at Grist. It's been a persistent interest of mine, but Thompson's book lays out a full, rich account of what models can and can't help us do and how we can put them to better use. I was thrilled to talk with her about some of her critiques of models and how they apply to climate modeling, among many other things. This is a long one, but a good one, I think. So settle in. All right, then, with uh, no further ado, Erica Thompson, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Hi, great to be here. I loved your book. And I'm so glad you wrote it. <laughs> I just want to start there. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Good to hear. Way, way, way back in the Mesozoic era when I was a young writer at a tiny little publication called Grist, this would have been like 2005, I think. One of the first things I wrote that really kind of blew up and became popular was, bizarrely, a long piece about discount rates and their role in climate models and the whole point of that post was, this is clearly a dispute over values. This is an ethical dispute that is happening under cover of science. And if, it's, and if we're going to have these ethical judgments so influential in, in our world, we should drag them out into the light and have those disputes in public with some democratic input. And for whatever reason... People love that post. I still hear about that post to this day. So all of which is just to say I have a longstanding interest in this, in models, and how we use them. And I think there's more public interest in this than you might think. So that's all preface. I'm not here to do a soliloquy about how much I loved your book. Let's start with um, just briefly about your background. Were you in another field and kept running across models and then started thinking about how they work or were you always intending to study models directly? How did you end up here? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, my background is maths and physics. And after studying that at university, I went to do a PhD. And that was in 
climate change physics, so climate science about North Atlantic storms. And the first thing I did, as you do, was a literature review about what would happen to North Atlantic storms given climate change, more CO2 in the atmosphere. And so you look at models for that. And so I started looking at the models and I looked at them and, you know, this was sort of 10, 15 years ago now. And certainly there's more consensus now. But at that time, it was really the case that you could find models doing almost anything with North Atlantic <laughs> storms. You could find one saying they were going to, the storm tracks would move north, they'd move south, they'd get stronger, they'd get weaker, they'd be more intense storms, less intense storms. And they didn't even agree within their own error bars. And that was what really, you know, stuck out to me was that actually, because they weren't, you know, the, these distributions weren't even overlapping. It wasn't telling me very much at all about North Atlantic storms, but it was telling me a great deal about models and the way that we use models. And so I got really interested in, you know, how we make inferences from models. How do we construct ranges and uncertainty ranges from model output? What should we do with it? What does it even mean? And then I've kind of gone from there into looking at models in a, a series of other contexts. And the book sort of brings together those thoughts into, into what I hope is a more cohesive argument about the use of models. Yeah, it's a real rabbit hole. It goes deep. <laughs> the book is focusing specifically on mathematical models, these sort of the complex um, models that you see today in the financial system and the climate system. But the term model itself, let's just start with that because... I'm not sure everybody's clear on just what that means. And you have a very sort of capacious definition I do, yeah. of what a model is. So just maybe let's start there. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose the models that I'm talking about mostly when I'm talking in the book is about complex models uh, where we're trying to predict something that's going to happen in the future. So whether mm. that's climate models, weather models, the weather forecast is a good example, um, economic forecasts, business forecasting pandemic and public health forecasting are ones that we've all been you know gruesomely familiar with over the last mm -hmm. few years so those are those are kind of the one end of a spectrum of models and they are the sort of big complex beast end of the spectrum but i also include in my idea of models i would include much simpler ones kind of an excel spreadsheet or even just a few equations written down on a piece of paper where you say i'm trying to sort of describe the universe in some way by making this model and writing this down. But also I would go further than that. And I would say that any representation is a model insofar as it goes. And so that could include a, a map or a photograph or a piece of fiction, even if we go a bit more speculative, you know, a, mm -hmm. a fiction or descriptions, you know, these are models as metaphors, we're making a metaphor in order to understand a situation. And so while while the sort of mathematical end of my argument is directed more at the, at the big complex models, um, the conceptual side of the argument, I think, applies all the way along. Right. And you could say, I mean, you know, in regard to mathematical models, some of the points you make are you can't gather all the data, you have to make decisions about which data are important, which to prioritize. So the model is necessarily a simplified form of reality. I mean, you could say the same thing about sort of the human senses and human cognitive machinery, right? Yeah, like totally, we're surrounded yeah. by data, we're, we're constantly filtering and doing that based on models. So you really could say it's models all the way down. Yes. Which I'm going to return to later, but I just wanted to lay that foundation. So in terms of these big mathematical models. I think one good distinction to start with, because you come back to it over and over throughout the book, is this distinction between uncertainty within the model. So a model says, you know, this outcome is 
60% likely, right? So there's like a certain degree of uncertainty about the claims in the model itself. And then there's uncertainty sort of extrinsic to the model about the model itself, whether the model itself is structured so as to do what you want it to do, right? Whether the model is getting at what you want to get at. And those two kinds of uncertainty map somehow onto the terms risk and uncertainty. (laughs) Somehow, yes. I'm not totally sure I followed that. So maybe just talk about those two different kinds of risks and, and how they get talked about. So I could start with risk and uncertainty because the easiest way to sort of dispatch that one is to say that people use these terms completely inconsistently and <sighs> you can find in you know in economics and physics risk and uncertainty are used effectively in completely the opposite meaning. Oh great. Um but generally one meaning of these two terms is to talk about uncertainty, which is in principle quantifiable, and right. the other one is uncertainty, which perhaps isn't quantifiable. And so in, in my terms, in terms of the book, so I sort of conceptualize this idea of model land as being where we are when we are sort of inside the model, when all of the assumptions work, everything is kind of neat and tidy, you've made your assumptions, and that's where you are, and you just run your model and you get an answer. And so within model land, there are some kind of uncertainties that we can quantify. We can take different initial conditions and we can run them or we can sort of squash the model in different directions and run it Mm. multiple times and get different answers and different ranges and maybe draw probability distributions. But actually, nobody makes a model for the sake of understanding model land. What we Mm. want to do is to inform decision making in the real world. And so what I'm really interested in is how you take your information from a model and use it to make a statement about the real world. And that turns out to be incredibly difficult and actually much more conceptually difficult than maybe you might first assume. So you could start with data and you could say, well, if I have lots of previous data, then I can build up a statistical picture of how good this model is, whether it's going to be any good. And And so you might think of uh, the models and the equations that sent astronauts to the moon and back, you know, those were incredibly good and incredibly successful. And many models are incredibly successful. They underpin the modern world. But these are essentially what I call interpolatory models. They're basically, they're trying to do something where we have got lots of data and we expect that the data that we have are directly relevant for understanding whether the predictions in the future are going to be any good. Right. Whereas when you come to something like climate change, for example, or you come to any kind of forecasting of a social system, you know that the underlying conditions are changing. The people are changing. The politics are changing. The, you know, even with the physics of the climate, the underlying physical laws we hope are staying the same, but the relationships that existed and that were calibrated when the Arctic was full of sea ice, for example, what do we have to go on to decide that they're going to be relevant when the Arctic is not full of sea ice? anymore. And so we rely much more on expert judgment. And at that point, then you get into a whole rabbit hole of, well, what do we mean by expert judgment? And maybe we'll come on to some of these themes later in the discussion, but these ideas of trust. So how do, how are we going to assess that uncertainty and make that leap from model land back into the real world? It becomes really interesting and really difficult and also really socially sort of dependent on, on the, the modeler and the society that the model is in. Right. It's fraught at every level. And one of the things, you know, that I really got from your book is that it's really, really far from straightforward to judge a model's quality. Like you talk about a, 
what is the term, a horse model yes. based on the, the guy who used to make hand gestures at the horse and the horse who looked like it was doing addition, looks like it was doing math. Yeah. But it turns out the horse was doing something else entirely. And so it only worked in that particular situation. If you took the horse out of that situation, it would no longer be doing math. And I think what's interesting is that the, you know, the handler wouldn't even have realized that, that it wasn't a deliberate attempt to deceive. It was the horse sort of picking up subconsciously or subliminally on the, the movement and the body language of the handler to get the right answer. Right. Well, just for, for listeners, this is a, a kind of a show that this guy used to do. He would give his horse arithmetic problems and the horse would tap its foot and get the arithmetic right and everybody was amazed. And so your point is just you can have a model that looks like it's doing what you want it to do, looks like it's predictive in the face of a particular data set, but you don't know a priori whether it will perform equally well if you bring in other data sets or emphasize other data sets or find new data. So even past performance is not any kind of guarantee, right? Yeah. And so it's this idea of whether we're getting the right answer for the right reasons or the right answer for the wrong reasons. And that, you know, then that intersects with all sorts of debates in AI and machine learning about explainability and whether we need to know what it's doing in order to be sure that it's getting the right answer for the right reasons or whether it doesn't actually matter and performance is the only thing that matters. So let's talk then about judging what's a good and bad model, because another good point you make, or I think you, you borrow, is that the only way to judge a model basically is relative to a purpose, whether it is adequate to the purpose we're putting it to. There's no amount of sort of cleanliness of data or like cleverness of rules, like nothing in the model itself is going to tell you whether the model is good. It's only judging a model relative to what you want to do with it. So say a little bit about the notion of adequacy to purpose. Yeah, so this idea of adequacy for purpose is one that's really stressed by a philosopher called Wendy Parker, who's been working a great deal with climate models. And so I guess the thing is that what metric are you going to use to decide whether your model is any good? There is no one metric that will tell you whether this is a good model or a bad model, because as soon as you introduce a metric, you're saying what it has to be good at. You know, I can take a photograph of somebody is it a good model of them? Well, it's great if you want to know what they look like, but it's not very good if you want to know you know, what their political opinions are or what they had for dinner. And other models in exactly the same way, they are designed to do certain things and they will represent some elements of a, of a system or a situation well, and they might represent other elements of that situation badly or not at all. And, you know, not at all doesn't really matter because it's something that you can't sort of imagine it in. But if it represents it badly, then it may just be that it's been calibrated to do something else. So the purpose matters. And when you have a gigantic model, which might be put to all manner of different purposes, so a climate model, for example, could be used by any number of different kinds of decision makers. So the question, is it a good model? Well, it depends whether you are you know, a international negotiator deciding what carbon emissions should be, or whether you're a subsistence farmer in sub-Saharan Africa, or whether you're a city mayor who wants to decide whether to invest in a certain sort of infrastructure development or something, or whether you're a multinational insurance company with a portfolio of risks, you will use it in completely different ways. And the question of whether it is any good doesn't really make sense. The question is whether it is adequate for these different purposes of informing completely different kinds of decisions. 
Right. Or even if you're just thinking about mitigation versus adaptation, yep. it occurs to me like different models might work better for those things. I guess the naive thing to think is if you find one that's working well for your purpose, that means it is more closely corresponding to reality than another model that doesn't work as well for your purpose. But really, we don't know that. Like, <laughs> there's just no way to step outside and get a view of it relative to reality and ever really know that. Yeah, and reality kind of has infinitely many dimensions, so mm. it doesn't really make sense to say that it's closer. I mean, it can absolutely be closer on the dimensions that you decide and you specify, but to say that it is absolutely closer, I think, doesn't actually make sense. Right, yeah. This is, I mean, the, the theme that's running through the book over and over again is real epistemic humility. Yes, very much so. Which I think... Uh, it's just it, you could even say it's epistemically humbling the book. That's sort sort of the way I felt about it. Great, that's actually that's really nice. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, at, at the end, I was like, I thought I didn't know much, and now I'm quite certain I know nothing. I know nothing at all. But not nothing at all. I mean, hopefully, hopefully, the way it ends is to say that you know we don't know nothing at all. We shouldn't be throwing away the models. They do contain useful information. We've just got to be really, really careful about how we use it. Yes, there's a, a real great quote, actually, that I almost memorized. We know nothing for certain, but we don't know nothing, yeah. I think, is the, way, is the way you put it in the book, which I really like. We're going to get back to that at the end, too. So another sort of fascinating case study that you mentioned, sort of anecdote that you mentioned that I thought was really, really revealing about sort of the necessity of human expert judgment in getting from the model to the real world is this story about the Challenger shuttle and the O-rings. The shuttle had flown test flights, several test flights beforehand using the same O-rings. Yes. And had done fine. So there's sort of two ways you can look at that situation. What one group argued was a shuttle with these kind of O-rings will typically fail. And these successful flights we've had are basically just luck. Yeah. Like we've had several flights cluster on one side of the distribution, on the tail of the distribution, and we can't rely on that luck to continue. And the other side said, no, the fact that we've run all these successful flights with these O-rings is evidence that the structural you know, integrity is resilient to these failed O-rings, to the sort of flaws in the O-rings. And the point of the story was both those judgments are using the exact same data and the exact same models, and both judgments are consonant with all the data and all the models. So the point being, so no matter how much data you have, and even if people are looking at the same data and looking at the same models, in the end, there's that step of judgment at the end. What does it mean and how does it translate to the real world that you just can't eliminate? You need, in the end, good judgment. Yeah, exactly. You can always interpret data in different ways, depending on how you feel about the model. And so another example I give that is along very similar lines is is thinking sort of if you were an insurance broker and you'd had somebody come along and sell you a model about flood insurance or about the likelihood of flooding, and they said a particular event would be pretty unlikely and you use that and you write insurance and then the following year some catastrophic event happens and you get you know you get wiped out what do you do next do you say oh dear you know it was a one in a thousand year event what a shame 
I'll go straight back into the same business because now the one in a thousand year event has happened. Right. It's perfectly commensurate with the model. It's perfectly commensurate with the model. Exactly. So do I believe the model and do I continue to act as if the model was correct? Or do I take this as evidence that the model was not correct and throw it out and not go back to their provider and maybe not write flood insurance anymore? (laughs) Right. And those are perfectly, you know, either of those would be reasonable if you have a strong confidence in the model, then you would take option A. And if you have low confidence in the model, you take option B. But those are judgments which are outside of model land. Right, right. Judgments about the model itself. And it just maybe worth adding that there is no quantity of data, right, or like detail in a model rules that can ever eliminate that judgment at the end of the line, basically. Yeah, because you have to you have to get out of model land. I mean, now some parts of model land are closer to reality than others. So if we have a, a model of rolling a dice, right, the, you know, you, you expect that to give you a reliable answer, quantitative. If you have a model of ballistic motion or the, you know, the taking astronauts to the moon and back, you expect right. that to be pretty good because you know that it's good because it's been good in the past. And you're there is an element of expert judgment because you're saying that my expert judgment is that the past performance is a good warrant of future success here. But that's a relatively small one and one that people would generally agree on. And then when you go to these more complex models and you're looking out into extrapolatory situations, predicting the future and predicting things where the underlying conditions are changing, then the expert judgment becomes a much bigger and bigger and bigger part of that. Yes, and that gets into the distinction between sort of modelers and experts, which I want to talk about a little bit later too. But one, the one more sort of basic concept I wanted to get at is this notion of performativity, which is to say that models are not just representing things, they're doing things and they're affecting how we do things. Yep. And they're not just sort of giving us information there, they're giving us what you call a conviction narrative. So maybe just talk about uh, performativity and what that and what that means. Yeah. So the idea of performativity is about the way that the models are part of the system themselves. So if you think about a central bank, if they were to create a model which made a forecast of a deep recession, it would probably immediately happen because it right. would destroy the market confidence. So that's a very strong form of performativity. Thinking about climate models, of course, we make climate models in order to influence and to inform climate policy. And climate policy changes the pathway of future emissions and changes the outcomes that we are going to get. So they, again, the climate model is feeding back on the climate itself. And the same, of course, with pandemic models, which were widely criticized for offering worst case scenarios. But obviously, the whole point of predicting a worst case scenario isn't to just sit around twiddling your thumbs and wait for it to come come true, but to do something about it so that it doesn't happen. I suppose technically that would be called counter-performativity in the sense that you're making the prediction and you, you, by making the prediction, you stop it from coming true. Exactly. And, you know, we, we get back again to like models can't really model themselves. You know, yep. it's like trying to look at the back of your head in a mirror. Ultimately, there's a incompleteness uh, to it. Yeah. But, but I found this notion of a conviction narrative. I, I found the point really interesting that in some sense – in a lot of cases, it's probably better to have a model than to not have one, even if your model is turns out to be incorrect. Talk about that a little bit. Just the way of the uses of models outside of sort of their strictly kind of representational informational 
Yeah. Okay. So the, I guess, thinking about this kind of performativity and maybe counterperformativity of models helps us to see that they are not just prediction engines. We are not just modeling for the sake of getting an answer and getting the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, we are doing something which is much more social and it's much more to do with understanding and communication and generating possibilities and understanding scenarios and talking to other people about them and creating a story around it. And so that's this idea of a conviction narrative. And what I've sort of developed in the book is the idea that the model is helping us to flesh out that conviction narrative. So conviction, because it helps us to gain confidence in a course of action, a decision in the real world, not in model land. It helps us to, and the narrative, because it helps us to tell a story. So we're sort of telling a story about a decision and a situation and a set of consequences that flow from that. And in the process of telling that story and thinking about all the different things, you know, whatever you happen to have put into your model and you're able to represent and you're able to consider within that, you know, developing that story of what it looks like and developing a conviction that some particular course of action is the right one to do or that you'll be able to live with it, or that it is something that you can communicate politically and and generate a consensus about. Right. And very frequently, those things are good in and of themselves, even if they're inaccurate. You talk about some business research, which found that sort of like businesses with a plan do better than businesses without a plan. Even sometimes at the plan, it's not a particularly good plan, just because having a plan gives you that just kind of a structured way of approaching and thinking about something. Yeah. And so maybe this is one of the more controversial bits of the book, but I, you know, I talk about, for example, astrology and systems where, <laughs> you know, if you're a, a scientist like me, you will say probably there is no predictive power at all in a astrological forecast of the future. You know, okay, opinions may differ. I personally (laughs) think that essentially they are random. I think you're on safe ground here. (laughs) I think so. Probably with your audience, I am. But the point is that that doesn't make them totally useless. So they can have, you know, genuinely zero value as prediction engines, but still be useful in terms of helping people to think systematically about possible outcomes, think about different kinds of futures think about negative possibilities as well as positive ones and put all that together just into a more systematic framework for considering options and coming to a course of action. Right. Or think about themselves. And think about themselves and their own weaknesses and vulnerabilities as well as strengths. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you a structure to do that. And I think that is absolutely not to be underestimated because there's sort of, there's two axes. There's the utility of prediction, you know, the accuracy Mm. of prediction. How good is this model as a predictor of the future? And then completely orthogonally to that, there is how good is this model, you know, in terms of the way that it is able to integrate with decision-making procedures? Is it, does it actually help to support good decision-making? And you can imagine all four quadrants of that. Obviously, Mm -hmm. we sort of hope that models that are really good at predicting the future will be really good at helping to support decision-making. But I mean, ultimately, if it could perfectly predict the future and it was completely deterministic and it just told you what was going to happen, that wouldn't be much use either. You know, you're back into sort of Greek myths and Greek tragedies. <laughs> actually, being told your future is not that useful. You, you need to have some degree of uncertainty in order to be able to have agency and take action and have the motivation to do anything at all. Yeah. So I guess I would say that astrological, you know, the astrology <laughs> wouldn't have hung around for centuries 
despite having zero predictive power. If somebody didn't find it useful. Right. If it did not have these other uh, yeah. these other uses. I just thought that was a, a little bit sort of um, tacking the other way from a lot of the points. You know, a lot of the points you're making in the book about those sort of weaknesses or limitations of models and, and et cetera, et cetera. But this was a point I thought where, you know, you sort of make the counterpoint that like, it's almost always better to have a model than no model. It's better to have some. Well, maybe. It depends what it is, and it depends whose model it is, and it depends what the agenda is of the person who's providing the model. I right. mean, and you can maybe take the uh, sort of both lessons from the astrology example, because I think right. you can find good examples in the past of sort of vexatious astrologers or astrologers with their own hidden agendas, doing giving <laughs> right. giving advice which was not at all useful, you know, or which was useful to themselves, but not to the person who commissioned the forecast. Yes, or like the king deciding whether to invade a, a neighboring country or something. Maybe. Right, yeah. Not great for that. So given all these, you know, and we've just really skated over them, there's a lot more to all these, but given these sort of limitations of mathematical models, this sort of inevitable uncertainty about whether you're including the right kinds of information, whether you're weighting different kinds of information well, whether past performance is any indicator of future performance, all these sort of limitations and the need for expert judgment, all to my mind leads to what I think is one of your key points and one of the most important takeaways, which is the need for diversity. Diversity, you know, I think these days has kind of a, <laughs> the, the word conjures this sort of representational, you know, like we yeah. feel good thing. Like we need to have a lot of different kind of people in the room so we can feel good about ourselves and everybody, you know, can see themselves on the TV or whatever. But you're making a much more very practical epistemic point about the need for diversity of both models and modelers. Yep. <laughs> so start with models. What would it mean to, like if I'm trying to, you know, forecast the future of the, you know, severe climate events, I think the naive, a naive sort of Western way of thinking about this would be you need to converge on the right model, the one that is correct, right? The yep. one that the one that represents reality. And your point is you never reach that. And so in lieu of being able to reach that, what works better is diversity. So say a little bit about that. Yeah, that's exactly it. So I suppose the the paradigm for model development is that you expect to converge on the right answer. Exactly. But I suppose what I'm saying is that because there can't, for various mathematical reasons, be a systematic way of converging on the right answer, because essentially because model space has infinitely many dimensions, <laughs> I'll go into that in a bit more detail for the more mathematically inclined. But because we don't have a systematic way of doing that, the statistics don't really work. So we can, if you have a set of models, uh, you can't just assume that they are independent and identically distributed sort of throws at a dartboard, and we can't just average them to get a better answer. So the idea of making more models and trying to sort of wait for them to converge on this correct answer just doesn't actually make much sense. We don't want to know that by making more similar models, we will get the same answer and the same answer again <laughs> and the same answer again. Actually, what we want to know is that no plausible model could give a different answer. So you're reframing the same question in the opposite direction. What would it mean to convince ourselves that no plausible model could give a different answer to that question? Well, 
instead of trying to push everything together into the center, and by the way, that's what the models that are submitted to the IPCC report, for example, do. They tend to cluster and to try to find consensus and to push themselves sort of towards each other. I'm saying we need to be pushing them away. You talk about this drive for a an Uber model, the whatever, the CERN of climate models, this push among a lot of climate models to find the sort of ER model, the ultimate model, and you are pushing very much in the other direction. Yeah. I mean, that has a lot to commend it as a way to sort of systematize the differences between models rather than the ad hoc situation that we have at the moment. So, I, d- I mean, I don't completely disagree with Tim Palmer and his his friends who say that sort of thing. It's It's not a silly idea. It's a good idea, but I think it doesn't go far enough because it it would help us to quantify the uncertainty within model land, but it doesn't help us to get a handle on the uncertainty outside model land, the gap between the models and the real world. And so what I'm saying is that if we want to convince ourselves that no other plausible model could give a different answer, then we need to be investigating other plausible models. Now, the word plausible is doing a huge amount of work there. And actually, then that is the crux of it, is saying, well, how do we, how can we as a community define what we mean by a plausible model? Do we just define it sort of historically by, you know, we've say, I mean, stick with climate for a minute. We've uh, we've started with these models of atmospheric fluid dynamics and then we've included the ocean and then maybe we've included a carbon cycle and some vegetation and uh, improved the resolution and all that sort of thing. But couldn't we imagine models which start in completely different places that model the same sorts of things? And if you had got a more diverse set of models that you considered to be plausible and you found that they all said the same thing, then that would be really very informative. Mm. And if you had a set of plausible models and they all said different things, then that would that would show you perhaps that your the models that you had in some sense had a bit of groupthink going on, that they were too conservative and they were too clustered. And I, I do have a feeling that that is what we would find if we genuinely tried to push the bounds of of the plausible model structures. Now, actually, then you run into the question of plausible. And that's a difficult one, you know, because mm-hmm. now we're into sort of scientific expertise, you know, who is qualified to make a model? What do we mean by plausible? Uh, which aspects are we prioritizing? And then we introduce value judgments. We say you have to be trained in physics, or you have to have gone to an elite institution. You have to have X many years of experience in running climate models. You have to have a supercomputer. And all of these are sort of barriers to entry to have a model which can then be considered on the same, you know, within within the same framework as everybody else's. So this is this is another then then the social questions about diversity start coming up. But I start with the maths and I work towards the social questions. I think that the you know, we can motivate the social concerns about diversity directly in the mathematics. Right. So you want a range of plausible models that's giving you so you can get a better sense of the full range of plausible outcomes. Yeah. But then you get into plausibility, you get into all kinds of judgments, and then you're back to the modelers. Exactly. And you make the point repeatedly that the vast bulk of models used in these situations in climate and finance, et cetera, are made by um, weird people. I'm trying to think of the Western. Uh, you, you you tell me. <laughs> yeah, never quite sure exactly what it stands for. I think it's Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and developed, something like that. And yes. it, I mean, I suppose it's used to refer to the nation rather than the individual person. But it's you know same idea. Right. So so the the modelers 
uh, historically have been drawn from a relatively small... From a very small demographic of, of elite people. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like there's a, if there's anything we've learned uh, in the past few years, it's that it is 100% possible for a large group of people drawn from the same demographic to have all the same blind spots and to you know have all the same biases and to miss all the same yeah. things. So tell us a little bit about the social piece then, because it's not, you know, like the notion that you should have a degree or some experience with mathematical models to make one and weigh in on them. It's not. It's not unreasonable. Crazy. Yes, right. So it's so not what, crazy. <laughs> so how would we, how would we diversify the pool of modelers? So that's what I mean. It's a it's a really difficult question because you're you sort of I mean it's what statisticians would call a biosphereans trade off. You want people with a lot of expertise, relevant expertise, but you don't want to end up with only one person or one group of people being given all of the decision making power. Right. So how far sort of away from what you consider to be perfect expertise do you go? And I suppose there maybe the first port of call is to say, well, what are the relevant dimensions of expertise? And you can start with perhaps formal, you know, formal education in the whatever the relevant domain is, whether it's public health or whether it's climate science. But I think then you have to include other forms of lived experience, you know, and I, I don't know what the answer looks like. You know, I, I say in the book as well, you know, what would it what would it look like if we were to get some completely different group of people to make a climate model or to make a pandemic model or whatever? It would look completely different. It would maybe it wouldn't even be particularly mathematical, or maybe it would be, but it would use some completely different kind of maths. Maybe it would be you know, I, I just don't know because actually I'm one of these weird, in inverted commas, people myself. I'm, <laughs> right. you know, I happen to be female, but in pretty much every other respect, I'm, I'm as sort of standard modeler type as it comes. So I just don't know what it would look like, but I think we ought to be exploring it. As I think through the sort of practicalities of trying to do that, I don't know, I guess I'm a little skeptical since it seems to me that a lot of what decision makers want, particularly in politics, is that sense of certainty. Yeah. And I'm not sure they care that much if it's faux, <laughs> faux certainty or false certainty or unjustifiable certainty. It is the, the sort of optics and image of certainty that they're after. So if you took that out of modeling, if you if the modelers themselves said, you know, here's a suite of possible outcomes, you know, how you interpret this is going to depend on your values and what you care about, that would be I feel like, you know, sort of epistemologically more honest. Yeah. But I'm not sure anyone would want that. The, the consumers of models, I'm not sure they would really want that. But it's interesting you say that that's a reason not to do it. I mean, surely that's well, a reason to do it. If the if the decision makers are sort of somewhat dishonestly saying, well, actually, I just want a number so that I can cover my back and make a decision and not have to be accountable to anyone else. I'm just going to say, oh, I was following the science, of course. Right. Well, that's that sounds like a bad thing. That sounds like a good reason to be diversifying. And that sounds like a good reason not to just give these decision makers what they say they want. There are maybe better arguments against it in terms of, um, like, is it even possible to integrate that kind of range of 
possible outputs into a decision-making process? Like, would we be completely paralyzed by indecision if we had all of these different forms of information coming at us? But I don't think that in principle, it's impossible. You know, for example, I would say that near future climate fiction is just as good a model of the future as the climate models and integrated assessment models that we have. I would I would put it kind of, I mean, not quite on the same level, but pretty close. Have you read The Deluge? Or have you heard of The Deluge? This is I've not novel. read that one. No, I was thinking of maybe Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. But I, I mean, other explorations of the near future are available. Right, I've read. I've read both. I just really have to recommend the Deluge to you if you okay, if you yeah. under reading. I just did, did a podcast with the author um, last week, and it's a really detailed twenty 2020 twenty to twenty forty walking through year by year. And obviously, like fiction is specific, right? So there's specific predictions which are scientifically sort of you know you'd never let a scientist do that. Yeah. But you can explore the social consequences yeah, and you really can think you about thinking. what it means and how it actually works, how it plays out in a way that you can't in a in a sort of relatively low dimensional climate model. You know, you can draw the pictures. Yeah. You can draw the sort of red and blue diagrams of where is going to be hot and where's going to be a bit cooler. But actually thinking about what that would look like and what the social consequences would be and what the political consequences would be and how it would feel to be a part of that future. Yes. That's something that models, you know, the mathematical kind of models can't do at all. That's one of their that's one of the axes of uncertainty that they just can't represent at all. But climate fiction can do extremely well. Yeah. I was just gonna I was gonna say that book got me thinking about these things in new ways, in a way that no, you know, white paper or new or new model or new IPCC ever exactly, has. Exactly. But if you're if you're thinking of the models as being sort of helping to form conviction narratives and they are sort of ways of thinking about the future and ways of thinking collectively about the future as well, as well as kind of exploring logical consequences, then, you know, in that paradigm, the climate fiction is, you know, really genuinely just as useful <laughs> as the mathematical model. Well, we've uh, you know been talking about models in general and their sort of limitations. So let's talk about climate specifically because it sort of occurred to me, maybe this isn't entirely true, but like the epidemiological thing and the finance thing, both in a sense, models play a big role in there, but there's also a lot of direct experiential stuff going on. But it's sort of like, Climate has come to us, the thinking public, almost entirely on the back of models, right? I mean, it's almost that's almost what it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can yes. see a severe yeah. weather event, but you don't know that doesn't say climate to you unless you already have the model of climate in your head. So it's it's the most sort of thoroughly modelized <laughs> yes. field of of sort of a human concern that there is. And so all the kind of dysfunctions that you talk about Absolutely. Are, are very much on display <laughs> in the climate world. So so let's just start by, you know, pointing out, as you do, the sort of famous models that have been used to represent climate. DICE, William Nordhaus's DICE model is, is famous, one of the earliest and famous. One of the things it's famous for is him concluding that four degrees <laughs> right there is the perfect balance of mitigation costs and climate costs. That's the economic sweet spot. Yeah. And of course, like any physical scientist involved in climate 
<laughs> who hears that is just going to fall out of their chair. You know, I, Kevin Anderson, who you cite in your book, I remember um, almost word for word this quote of his in a paper where he basically says, four degrees is incommensurate with organized human <laughs> civilization, <laughs> like, like flat out. Uh, so that delta, tell us how that happened and what we, what we should learn from that about what's happening in those dice-style models. Well, I think we should learn not to trust economists with Nobel Prizes. That's one starting point. <laughs> I'm, I'm cheering. Good. Uh, I'm over here cheering. So, uh, yeah, what can we learn from that? I mean, I think we can learn maybe for a starting point, the idea of an optimal outcome is an interesting one. Um, yeah. You know, who says that there is an optimal? How can we? How can we even conceptualize trading off a whole load of one set of bad things that might happen with another set of bad things that might happen. So yes. I mean, imagine all the value judgments involved yes, in that. Exactly. 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 You're turning everything into a scalar and then optimizing it. <laughs> I mean, isn't that, that's weird if anything. Yes. Is. And you would think like, how should we figure out how we value all the things in our world? Well, let's let William Nordhaus do it. <laughs> you know, <like> that. <laughs> yes. It's, it's very odd when you think about it. So I mean the the you know you can you can read many other even better critiques of Nordhaus's work and sort of thinking about these different aspects of how uh how the values of outcomes are determined and how things are costed and of course as he's an economist everything is in dollars so it's uh, it's a sort of least cost pathway is the optimal one. So I mean it may indeed be that the lowest financial cost to global society is to end up at four degrees, but that will end up with something that looks very strange. Maybe there will be a lot more zeros in bank accounts. Great, fine, but is that really what we care about? <laughs> it just right. How many zeros compensate for the loss of you know New Orleans or, or yeah, whatever? Exactly, the loss of species across the planet and coral reefs and all the rest of it. You know, how can you? I, th I think even the concept that you can put these things on a linear scale and subtract one from the other doesn't just doesn't make sense. And also, one of the amusing features of these models that you point out, which I have you know obsessed over for years, is they sort of assume as a model input that the global economy is going to grow merrily along at forever. 2% a year <laughs> forever. And then, and then, you know, I have arguments with people about the effects of climate change and they say, well, it, you know, it's, it's not going to be that big a deal. The economy is going to keep growing. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? And they're like, well, that's what the model says. And I'm like, mm. well, yeah, that's because you put it in the model. Like you can't put it in there and then go later, go find it there and say, oh, look what, look what we found, economic growth. Yeah. And they sort of, you know, they hold that 2% growth steady and then just subtract from that whatever climate does. And the whole notion that... I mean, the notion, I think, you know, they, they everything is predicated on marginal outcomes that the, that, as you say, everything will just continue as it is. And climate change is only an incremental additional right. subtraction on top of that. I mean, that, I think for anyone who has really thought through, and perhaps we need to be sending these economists some more climate fiction so that they can start <laughs> thinking through what the systemic impacts are of climate change. Because yes, I mean, I can sort of see that if you thought climate change was only going to be about the weather changing slightly mm. in all the different places, 
that you would say, well, what's the big deal? We can the the weather will change a bit, and it'll be maybe a bit hotter there, and a bit wetter there, and a bit drier there, and yeah, we'll just, just adapt to it. You just you just move the people, <laughs> and you change your agricultural systems, and grow different crops, and raise the flood barriers a bit. And all of those have a cost and you just add up the cost and you say, well, actually, you know, we'll be able to afford it. It'll be fine. So I can sort of understand how they ended up with that view. And yet, as soon as you start thinking about any of the social and political Mm -hmm. and (laughs) systemic impacts of anything more than very trivial perturbations to the climate, it just becomes impossible to imagine that any kind of uh, incremental model like that makes any sense at all, and yet this is sort of state of the art in in economics, which is you know really disappointing. Actually, it would be really nice to see more. You don't even need to send them climate fiction, as you say in that chapter. Even if they just went and talked to physical scientists, if you just if you just ask physical scientists or sociologists or people from outside kind of the economic modeling world, what's your expert sense yeah. of What's going to happen? Yeah. None of them say <laughs> steady economic growth as far as the eye can see with the, you know, the occasional hiccup. Yeah. So I think economics has become sort of wildly detached from physical reality somehow, and I'm not quite sure how it happened. And, you know, there are good people within the economics profession fighting against that tide, but it seems very hard to counter it. You know, Nordhaus was getting his Nobel Prize in, in 2018, <sighs> which is only, you know, five years ago. Yes. Another quote that grabbed me is, uh, um, you know, in this in the sense of we don't know how to assign probability to some of these sort of big kind of phase shift things that might happen, the tipping points or, or whatever you call them, or 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 social tipping points, or you know, yeah, we don't know how to assign probabilities to these things, and so we don't put them in the model, <laughs> and so then the model tells us. No worries. <laughs> These things are going to happen. But as you say, absence of confidence is not confidence of absence. Exactly. And one point you make, you know, the, 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 your general point about climate models is that they sort of represent a failure or several failures of imagination. But as you say, um, making the models this way, so they only show marginal changes. So they basically show the status quo out to the indefinite future with just one or two percent of GDP growth shaved off. It's not benign to do the model that way because then the model feeds back and and affects how we think about the future. Yes. It the failure of imagination going into the model then comes back out of the model and and creates a failure of imagination. Yep. This gets back to the sort of models not just being predictive engines, but being, you know, narratives, stories, ways of thinking. Yeah, these models change how we make climate policy. They change how we think about the future. They change the decisions that we make. They frame the way that we think about it. And so, you know, I think when we have economic models that say four degrees is optimal, or when we have climate models that sort of, I think, are, you know, not to the same extent, but somewhat guilty of doing the same thing, of of projecting a future which looks much like the past, but with marginal changes. I think maybe we're getting, maybe modelers, physical modelers are becoming more confident about the possibility of of more radical change in, in the physical system as well. It was interesting to see the change in language around the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, for example, the, the Gulf Stream, which is such a big influence on the climate of Northern Europe. And of course, it's also because 
that transfers heat from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere. It's also, if that were to change, it would be a huge change to the uh, climate of the southern hemisphere as well. So it's not solely a, a European concern. But I think models over the past sort of 20, 30 years have been Again, it's sort of this trying to find consensus and trying to look mm. like the other models. And I, you know, I wouldn't say it's necessarily deliberate. It's just sort of you run a model and you find that it does something a bit weird. So you go back and you tweak it and you do something a bit different and you try and get it to look more like the other models because you think that if, you know, if all the other models say something, then that must be sort of what we're expecting. And we don't want to look too far out. Otherwise, maybe we'll, we won't get included in the next IPCC report. Right. And if you're averaging out, it's the discontinuities yeah. and the sudden breaks that kind of get thrown overboard if you're trying to... Sort of exactly. And you start saying, well, this one's an outlier, so maybe we won't include it in the statistics or this one, you know, it just doesn't look physically plausible. And of course, anything, as soon as you start looking into the details, you're going to be able to say it's wrong or you're going to find a bug or something because it's wrong everywhere because all models are wrong. <laughs> right. But that shouldn't be a problem because we make models knowing that we are making a simplification. But if we investigate the ones that are more far out, you know, with more zeal to look for these errors and problems, you know, we will find a reason to discount them. So that is statistically worrying because it's, um, you know, we, we should have to sort of pre-register our model runs and say, actually, I'm going to run this set of model runs with these sets of parameters. And it doesn't matter what the output looks like, I'm going to consider those all to be equally likely. Because if you start going back and pruning them with respect to your expert judgment about what it ought to look like, then you'll end up with a distribution that looked like what your preconception was, not like what the model was telling you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing to say any given sort of discontinuity or outlier might be statistically unlikely. But to me, nothing's more statistically unlikely than 80 years of human history <laughs> with, no, <laughs> with no discontinuities and no sharp breaks and no, you know, wiggles in the lines of smooth curves. Yeah. And another way this, this way of modeling sort of a, turns around and affects us is, as you say, it, as we are forming policy. And, you know, I guess I had had this in my head, but I thought you crystallized it quite well, which is that if you look at these models, these, these climate economic models, if you look at the ones where climate change gets solved, right? It's just sort of the steadily increasing curve of solar and the steadily increasing curve of wind and everything sort of just like marginally inches up to where it needs to be. Yeah. When you think about it, that representation excludes radical solutions. Yeah. It excludes everything really, but price tweaks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I mean, because that's the way these models are made, they are cost optimizing models which are entirely determined by the price that you happen to set. And so, you know, the integrated assessment models that we're talking about, you know, they include costs on different energy system technologies, so a cost for nuclear and a cost for renewables and a cost for anything else you want to put in. And depending on what it costs, it will rely more or less on that particular technology. But of course, behavior change could just as well mm -hmm. be put in. How much would it cost in dollars per ton of carbon avoided to change people's behavior so that you use less electricity, for example. Maybe we're starting to see that with all the stuff about, you know, conserving energy in light of the Ukrainian crisis. Mm. But how much would that cost? And it would be completely arbitrary to say how much it would cost because it's so dependent on social and political whims and the winds of change and the trends in society. 
it doesn't really make sense to try and put a price on it because it would depend on how it's framed and who's doing it and all of that. Right. Or like, what is the dollar value of a social uprising that results in social democracy? Yeah, like exactly. How, how do you price that? And also on the technologies. I mean, I'm sure you've discussed this before on your podcast, but the cost of carbon capture and storage, how much is that going to influence the pathways that we have? And you see the pathways more and more are dependent on a lot of carbon capture at the end of the century in order to make everything balance out. If you put it in with a high cost, then you won't use it. If you put in with a low cost, you'll use loads of it. And then is that performative or is it counterperformative? Is it the case that the policymakers look at it and say, ah, we're going to need loads of this interesting technology and we don't have it yet. I'd better put loads of money into investing and developing it. Or do they look at it and say, oh, this means that the economic forces that are acting in the climate domain mean that it will be highly economic to do air capture at the end of the century and therefore governments don't need to do anything and we'll just wait and it will happen because it's determined by the market. Which way are they thinking? I have no idea. <laughs> right. But those are really different and they, they result in really different futures. They don't result in the future that was that was predicted. Right. This, this is, gets to moral hazards and model hazards, which I hope yeah. you can just segue into here because yes. I, I found that <laughs> those two concepts also quite helpful. So the next one I think that is going to end up in these models is geoengineering, for example. And so you could equally well put into the same model with the same framework. I mean, it would be then in terms of uh, sort of either dollars per ton of carbon equivalent in the atmosphere, but negative for the amount of shading that you could get for a certain amount of stratospheric aerosol injection or, you know, whatever your favorite technology is. But you could, in principle, stick that in. And what is the price that you're going to put on it? If you put it in at $2,000 per tonne of CO2, it's not going to happen. If you put it in at $2 per tonne of CO2, it's going to be totally relied on and it will be the linchpin of all successful trajectories that meet the Paris targets by 2100. And if you put it in somewhere in between, you'll get more or less of it depending on that price point. So who decides what price point it's going to go in at? Yes, and you and you really capture the sort of like Ouroboros nature of this. So we're, we're you know, we, we add up all the technologies we have. There's a hole left. We say we're going to carbon capture that hole. That's how we're going to fill that hole in our in, in our mitigation. And then we turn around and look at the model where we stuck this arbitrary amount of, of, of carbon capture in and turn around and say, oh, well, we have to do carbon capture because that's what the model said is needed. Yeah. And again, it's like, wait a minute, you went and put that label on the hole in the model. Yes. And then you went in and found it in the model and are now claiming that the model is telling you you have to do this. But it just says you have to do this because you you're hearing an echo of your own decisions. Exactly. But I think more generally, that's what these models are doing for us. They encapsulate a set of expert judgments and opinions and they put them into a mathematical language. But that doesn't make them any more objective. It perhaps makes them slightly more logically self-consistent with the different numbers that have got to, you know, have got to chime with each other. But it doesn't actually make them any more authoritative and objective than if they were just written down or or spoken. Well, it insulates them. It insulates them from criticism. Public scrutiny. Yes, absolutely. It gives them the vibes of, of expertise. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that daunts people and, and keeps people away. Yes. And so carbon capture right now is playing that role. We just sort of decided arbitrarily we need X amount of carbon capture because that's 
how much mitigation we have left to do that we don't know how to do with other sources. And we're, yeah, you know, we're just arbitrarily deciding on the price of carbon capture. Yeah. Because we don't know what that price is because it doesn't really exist at scale yet. So we're making these arbitrary decisions. Exactly. It was going to be renewables and renewables weren't fast enough. So then it had to be something else. And then it was going to be carbon capture and storage. And that wasn't quite enough. So now it's direct air capture. And next it's going to be geoengineering. I mean, I can't see another way around that. That is the trajectory that these models are taking. And once the geoengineering is in the models, then it will become a credible policy option and alternative. So we need to be ready for that. Well, this is this point you're making so disturbed me that I wrote the whole quote down from the book. You say, if the target of climate policy remains couched in the terms of global average temperature, then stratospheric aerosol geoengineering seems to me now to be an almost unavoidable consequence in its inclusion in integrated assessment models will happen in parallel with the political shift to acceptability. Yeah, that's just super disturbing. So, so we're just sort of assuming a can opener to fill these holes in our models, and then we're finding a can opener in our model, and we're like, "Oh my god, we got to go build." <laughs> yes, go. and so this is why I think it's so important that we move the discussion from technology and away to values. I mean, I think that stratospheric aerosol injection could be a perfectly legitimate and reasonable solution, but. It must be one that we've talked about, and it must be one that we understand what value judgments are being made, what trade-offs are being made, what kind of solutions are being ignored in favor of doing this technological thing, what kind of other options are favored by different people and different kinds of people. Because geoengineering, you know, the sort of big, sexy technological project is a very tech bro solution. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very top-down mathematical elitist predict and optimize it's in the same vein as all of these economic things it's about optimization and calculation i always think about the guy who wanted to blow up a nuclear bomb on the, some alaska coast to make a better harbor like that's <laughs> Yeah, right. So it's it's about one-dimensional outcomes, you know. Right. If you say all we want is a harbor, okay, go ahead and right. do the nuclear bomb because that's <laughs> it will it will achieve your objective. And if the only if literally the only objective of climate policy is to keep global average temperature below 2 degrees, then geoengineering will probably be the most cost-effective and easy way to do that. But it is not the only thing that matters, you know, it, the future of global democracy, the values of different citizens, what kind of future are we trying to get to? So I think this is another problem of the way that we typically model is that it starts with an initial condition of where we are now, and then everything spreads out and everything becomes more uncertain as you look forward in time. And that kind of leaves people twisting in the wind, wondering, well, what, what is this future going to look like? We just don't know. It's really uncertain. It's really scary. It could be this. It could be that. It could be catastrophe. And actually, I think politically and in terms of thinking maybe more in conviction narratives, what we need to be doing is coming up with a vision for 2100, articulating a vision for what the future would look like if we had solved the problem that we have. And it's not just climate change, it's resource scarcity and it's sociopolitical questions. And it, ultimately, it's a, it's a much bigger kind of almost theological question about how humanity relates to the planet that we happen to find ourselves on. You know, these are big, big questions, and they're not technical questions. They're social and political and spiritual questions about what we're doing here and what we want society to look like. And so if you if you had a vision of the future of what you want 2100 to look like and how people should be 
living with each other and how politically we should be thinking about our problems. Then you say, and then you use your model in a different mode. You say, if we're aiming for that kind of future, what do we have to do one year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 30 years from now, in order to stay on track for that future that we want? Rather than just saying, you know, we are starting here from this initial condition and we have all these possible outcomes, possible trajectories kind of diverging forward from us. That's a really much harder sell and it's harder to communicate and it's harder to and I think it lends itself towards this one-dimensional thinking of saying we have, you know, global mean temperature is the problem. Well, I mean, global mean temperature is not really the problem. It's right. geo- geopolitics is the problem. Nobody lives in mean temperature, right? Nobody lives it, in. It, nobody it, was yeah. ever killed by global mean temperature. People <laughs> are killed by things that happen locally. And if you're envisioning the 2100 you want, Nobody is envisioning a global mean temperature. <laughs> but people may be envisioning very different things. And then I think, you know, then I think it is interesting to listen to some of the people who might call themselves climate skeptics. What is it that they're afraid of? You know, it's sort of authoritarian global government and all that sort of thing. And is that, in fact, what climate models and the larger scale modeling community are kind of being shepherded into propping up? I mean, what, what is it politically? that is convenient about this kind of model as opposed to another kind of model or another kind of way of thinking about the future and orienting ourselves towards the future. I mean, this is, I think, something the book conveys really well is that, you know, if you think about adequacy to purpose and you think about, well, what is the purpose? And the purpose of achieving a desired sociopolitical outcome in 2100 is very different than the goal of achieving average mean temperature. But just because you're targeting average mean temperature doesn't mean you're not making a political statement. The political statement you're making is, we want to preserve the status quo, right? Yes, We yes, want everything exactly. to stay the way it is with a few tweaked parameters. Like, yeah. I'm sure the modelers probably wouldn't sort of explicitly say that. No, and I think it's harder to make that argument for climate models than for economic models. You know, the physics of climate is somewhat different from the economics of climate. Well, the climate economic models, I mean. Yeah, the economic models. No, absolutely. And it's all in there in that one-dimensional reduction of everything to costs. You know, if we reduce everything to costs and we say, then actually the amount that African GDP will change by, you know, if if African GDP decreases by 80% versus American GDP increasing by 20%, Maybe that's an adequate trade-off, you know, <laughs> you turn it into something that, it, and again, this just doesn't make sense. Like we have to be thinking about the moral and ethical content of these statements. When you say a dollar is a dollar is a dollar, then actually, if you say that and you are happy to trade off, you know, 80% of GDP in sub-Saharan Africa against 20% increase in GDP in Northern Europe or the US, which is what some of these economic models end up effectively doing. <laughs> That's an enormous ethical judgment. And one that I think if it were made clearer, people simply wouldn't agree with. That's a more elegant way of putting the, the point that I frequently put bluntly to modelers about this, which is you could wipe out, I mean, never mind 80% of the GDP, you could just wipe out the entire continent of Africa and it wouldn't have a very big effect on the course of global GDP. Yes. So is that okay? Is that 
are we optimized still if we've lost <laughs> all yeah. of Africa? So this is one of, I mean, this is one of the the successors to Nordhaus. There are there are other papers in climate economics which take a more, you know, a slightly more realistic view. And um, so I was asked for a comment on a paper about effectively the same thing: the sort of average temperature and the optimal pathways. And so they look and find that an increase of a few degrees would reduce the GDP of Africa by something like 80%, you know, very dramatic. And mm. and you say, is this, is it remotely credible to think that one could have absolute economic crisis in some of the largest nations on earth right. without that having any feedback effect on the rest <laughs> right. of the planet? And they just meekly accept it. They're like, oh, dang it, yeah. dang it. It's like, what, you know, I mean, regardless of whether you consider it ethically acceptable, do you really think that it can happen without any geopolitical implications? <laughs> you know, are you, are you, is, is the billionaire sitting there in the bunker in New Zealand going to be happy with a few extra zeros on the end of their bank account as the world collapses around them? I mean, are they really, are they, I really am interested to know what the, what the kind of thought process is there. Like, I don't quite understand how you come to what seems to be the conclusion that you should be hoarding the resources and then holding up in a bunker in New Zealand. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if you saw recently <laughs> the article by David Rothkoff where he was summoned basically to a panel of, of oh, billionaires. Oh, yes, I did see that one. I did see they, that one. And they yeah, were yeah. asking him questions about their bunkers. And I know. whatever low opinion you might have had of them, it's not low enough. The questions about their bunkers are so naive. Yeah, it's depressing. So in model land, in some sense, uh, it's it's absolutely wild. But this is the economic mentality of saying that the zeros on the bank account are all that matters and that I am an individual and I am not part of a society and I can thrive regardless of what the rest of the planet looks like. You know, that it's that sort of divorce from reality that somehow, somehow some group of people and you know, perhaps it's a, in an extreme version of the of the mentality of the economists and the economic models that are making these kind of projections and saying that this kind of thing can happen. So, taking your recommendations, I mean, you, you have at the end of the book five recommendations for better modeling, and I think people can probably extrapolate some of them from what we've said so far. You bring in more kinds of perspectives, you bring in more different kinds of models, you take outliers more seriously things like that. But if you did all those things, what you would be doing is stripping away a lot of the kind of faux objectivity yeah. uh, that we have now and exposing the fact that there's a hole that can only be filled by expert judgment or uh, by, by judgment, really, by human judgment. Yes. And that is terrifying, I think, to, to people, particularly people making big decisions that involve lots of people there are desperate for some sense of something solid to put their back against, right? Something that they can reference if they're questioned later about why they made the discussion, you know? So I wonder if, in a sense, this is not problems that are arising out of just sort of bad modeling, but they're, in some sense, these problems are downstream from a very basic socio-cognitive need for certainty and fear of sort of openly exercising judgment and openly defending ethical positions. Do you know what I mean? In some yes. sense, like that's, that fear is what produced this situation rather than vice versa. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think, I think they kind of have gone together and it, 
you know, as the models and the idea that the science can give us an answer and the promise of the scientists that science will be able to give us an answer, as that has kind of, as the scientists have kind of gone, oh, hey, we could do that and we could do this and we could do the other thing as well and we can give you an answer and, you know, just give us a few more million pounds and a better computer <laughs> and we'll, and we'll give you more answers and better answers and we'll start then we'll start applying some ai as well and we'll automate it all and eventually you know you won't even need to think about it you can just follow the science follow the science follow the science i, do, I really don't like follow the science i hate that term so much i was so i i was literally cheering in my bed reading this part but you know it, you say what to me always seems so obvious and yet when i try to talk about this on twitter or in public i just get the weirdest backlash, but I just want to tell people in the climate world, like science does not tell you what to do. Yes. Quit, quit claiming that we have to do X, Y, and Z because science says so. That's just not the kind of thing that science does. Science hopes to be able to tell you, like in the best case scenario, science can tell you if you do A, this will happen. And if right. you do B, that will happen. And right. if you do C, that will happen. But it doesn't have an opinion <laughs> in theory, on which of those is the best outcome. Now, in practice, the kind of science that we do and the way that I've sort of described that values and judgments do enter into the modeling process, actually, we do to some extent have an entry of those value judgments into even that beginning section, if A, then what, and if right. B, then what, and if C, then what. But you know, you, you can't get from an is to an ought. You have to introduce value judgments. You have to say, I prefer this outcome. And ideally, if you're making decisions on behalf of a large group of people, that has to be in some way representative, or at least you have to communicate, I want this outcome for the following reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I would really like to see an IPCC working group four, which is about ethics and value judgments oh, yes. and the politics of climate change and says, well, why is it that people disagree? Because I think, you know, I've if you go to a uh, climate skeptic, again, sort of in inverted commas, conferences, or if you talk to them, you know, they are not idiots and they are not uncaring. They tend to be people who genuinely care about the future and about their children's prospects and all the rest of it. And okay, many people find them very annoying, but the, <laughs> the point is that their underlying motivation is actually very similar to most other people, and they just have quite different assumptions about either what the future will look like, perhaps misconceptions about the facts as well in some cases. But a lot of that is motivated by a worry about the political outcomes of you know what what people saying follow the science are telling you to do right exactly and i think they sense in some ways almost more than sort of your average kind of lefty climate science believer does that there are value judgments being smuggled past them yeah under cover of science i mean it's it's easier to spot value judgments when they are not your own value judgments because if <laughs> right. they are your own value judgments then you don't really notice them you just think it's natural and so this is another good argument for diversity in modeling because in order to be able to see these value judgments, they are much more easily uncovered by somebody who doesn't share them. Even just to say humanity is worth preserving, we should preserve the human species, that in itself is a value judgment. That's a value judgment. Absolutely. Science is not telling you you, you need to or, or, or have to do that. Yes. I sort of wonder, and I, it, you know, this is talk about unknowables, but if the IPC did that, 
and really did systematic work bringing all these value judgments, sort of dragging them out of their scientific garb and, and exposing them to the light and reviewing how different people feel about them. Do you feel like that would, because I know your average weird science model bro, his fear about that is, well, if you do that, then everybody will just think they're relative and they can choose whatever they want. And, you know, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be chaos. But do you think that's true or do you think it would help? I don't know whether it would help. I mean, I think, I think that it would help to separate the facts and the values because I think people who disagree on the values are, because there is no conversation about the values, they are left with the only thing that they can get their hands on is the model and effectively the facts, the science. And so they start doing, you know, making sometimes what are quite reasonable questions about the statistics of model interpretation and sometimes unreasonable criticisms about, say, the greenhouse effect. Now, if we could separate that out and say, actually, we agree that the greenhouse effect is a real thing because this is basic physics and, you know, actually criticizing that doesn't make any sense, but we will entertain your difference of value judgments about the relative importance of individual liberties and, you know, economic growth versus the value of other species or of human equality or whatever, you know, all of these other things, you know, you can stick it, stick it all in there and say, mm-hmm. we, we allow you to have a different opinion. And then maybe we can agree to agree on the facts. So I think it probably wouldn't work because things are probably too far gone for that to actually result in any form of consensus. But I think if we could sort of bottom that out and say, what it, you know, what is it that you're most scared of to everybody? You know, what is it that you're most scared of losing here? Mm-hmm. I think that would be a really revealing question. And I think that would that would also help to incorporate different communities and more diverse communities into the climate conversation because I think – then you're into questions about, well, really, what is it that you care about? What are you scared? Mm-hmm. What what future are you most scared of? Are you most scared of a future where, you know, society breaks down in inverted commas? But is it because you're scared of other people? Or is it because you are worried about not having the economic wealth that you currently enjoy? Or is it because you are scared of losing the the biodiversity of the planet or you know there are so many things that people could kind of put in that box or are you most scared of losing your gas stove yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes i mean that's an interesting one isn't it so like why why has that become such a big thing really is right there's layers to it there's layers but there's layers on both sides i mean there's there's the kind of the instinctive don't tell me what to do but there's also well why are you telling people what to do uh, what is the information not sufficient? Right. What is the kind of knee-jerk requirement to regulate versus the knee-jerk response against regulation? These are both they're they're both kind of instinctive political stances. Yes, and a lot of values, a lot of with unspoken. a whole load of other things tangled <laughs> yeah. up in them, yes. which you know, as you know, I'm not an American, so I hesitate to go any further than that. <laughs> Yes, well, uh, there there are layers upon layers that you can't even imagine. There are like local political layers. There's it, it goes on and on. I'm doing a whole podcast on it, and and I'm worried how to fit it all into one hour. It's just on gas stoves. So, and I and I also think, uh, you know, to follow up on the sort of previous point you're making, the model centricness of our current climate dialogue and climate policy dialogue, I think, just ends up excluding a lot of 
groups who who have things to say and values and, and, and you know the sort of cliche here is the sort of indigenous groups you know they have relationships with the land that are extremely meaningful and and involve particular patterns and those things are of great value but if they're told at the door quantify this or quantify this or it doesn't count yeah stay out exactly. <laughs> then they're just then they're just going to stay out so yeah at the very least, it would be a more interesting dialogue if we if we heard from more voices. Yeah. But I mean, I think we have to sort of internalize and accept the idea that people with less education, you know, formal education in the sense that sort of we consider there to be a hierarchy of people with more letters after their name are more qualified, <laughs> you know, and therefore more qualified to inform climate policy and more qualified to have a view on what they think the future should be like. You know, I realize it's a somewhat radical position, but I think that Everybody has an, a valid opinion and a right to an opinion about what they want the future to look like. Yes, yes. We're just back to, you know, it's funny. We're talking about it this in, in the realm of climate. But as you say in the book, like there's just a million realms of sort of human endeavor, particularly collective human endeavor, where we're running into these same kind of things. We don't really seem to know how to have honest, transparent arguments about values anymore <laughs> like Can we find it really hard to talk about values at all you know it's yeah. really hard even like if a scientist stands up and says that they love and care about something that's kind of a weird thing to do why would yeah. you do that oh well, we're all a you're bit uncomfortable biased. <laughs> you're biased exactly you biased in favor of life when you start saying when you start saying that sort of thing you know maybe maybe your science is corrupted by it we can't we can't have that Yes, yes, I know. And just like convincing, it's another thing I get yelled at about online, just trying to convince people that you are an embedded creature. You have a background, you are socialized to think and feel particular ways, like you are coming from a place. Yeah. And it's worth being aware of what that place is and aware of how it might be influencing your thinking and aware of other ways, blind spots. And just like people get very... And aware that some people's places and situations are noticed more than others, you know, that that if you are a, a sort of white male, well-educated tech bro, then your personal background and situation is not scrutinized the way it is if you are someone different, in inverted yes. commas, in, in whatever way that might be. And the more privilege you have, the more incentive you have to think that your opinions are springing from the operation of pure reason are objective and neutral and yeah when your when your value judgments are are uh, hegemonic let's say exactly it's all to your benefit to keep them hidden right you don't want them exactly. dragged out into the light there yeah. anyway okay i've uh, kept you for way longer than i said i would i uh, as i said i love this book there is one more thing i wanted to touch on just briefly and this is a bit of a, a personal goof but i in another lifetime uh, many many moons ago studied philosophy in school and um, you you slip a line in here early early in the book when you're talking about what models are and they're sort of what you mean by model. And you talk about how, you know, they're just ways of structuring experience so that we can make sense of it and predict it. And when you think about it that way, you know, as we said earlier in the conversation, pretty much everything is a model. Like <laughs> if yeah. we're not processing raw data, right? We're filtering from the very beginning through our sort of models and you slip in this line where you say, in this sense, real laws like, say, speed of light or gravity or whatever are only model laws themselves, which is to say all our knowledge, 
even the knowledge we think of as most objective and, and sort of straightforward and unmediated is in a model. And therefore, all the things you say about our relationships with our models and how to do better modeling, it seems to me all that applies <laughs> to all human knowledge. <laughs> right? uh, I mean, yes. I mean, you're really in the rabbit hole now. But I mean, yes, yes. I mean, what, what is it that convinces you that the speed of light is the same today as it will be tomorrow? Exactly. I mean, how do you know? How do you know? Exactly. What, what is it that gives you that confidence? I mean, I think you can reasonably have confidence in many of these things. And of course, the mathematics is, as somebody else said, unreasonably effective in the natural sciences. <laughs> there is no a priori reason to think that it ought to be. So, you know, don't worry too much about it. I think, I think that we can make an empirical observation that the laws of physics do work really well for us and that models are and can be incredibly successful in predicting a whole load of physical phenomena and, you know, can be genuinely useful and can be calibrated and we can have good and warranted reliance on those models to make decisions in the real world. So yes, you're right that technically I think there is a, a problem all the way down, but we do have more confidence in some areas than others. Well, this course you're charting between, on the one hand, sort of naive logical positivism, right? That we're yeah. just sort of seeing reality. And on the other hand... Naive skepticism that says we just can't do it. Hopeless relativism. Yes, exactly. We have this middle course, which I associate very strongly with the American pragmatists, James, Dewey, right, and then on and on later into Rorty. I don't know if you ever got into that or studied that, but this sort of practical idea that we know nothing for certain, but we do know things. And to say that we only believe a model because it's worked in the past and we don't have any sort of absolute metaphysical certainty that it maps onto reality will work again is not disqualifying. Like that's just the nature of, you know, this is the nature of human knowledge. It's as good as we can get. You just can't have full certainty, but, but it, works. it works. Like it's good. some things work and something to me, this is pragmatist epistemology all, all over again. So I don't, I don't know if anybody's ever brought up that parallel with you, but it's, yeah, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a philosopher, and I'm kind of only tangentially involved with philosophy of science, and there are many different streams of thought within that. But yes, it sounds very much very much like that. Well, those those were all my beloved. That's what I studied back when I studied philosophy, and so a lot of this stuff that you're saying throughout, I was like, this is not just about mathematical models. This is just about <laughs> how to be a good epistemic citizen, right? How, yeah. how to think well. Well, that would make a good subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought you might want to rein in a little short of... <laughs> Maybe the of, next book. <laughs> ...of those kind of grand claims. But I really do think that like, even people who aren't interested in mathematical modeling as such can learn from this just about how to, you know, just about how to have, uh, what's it called, a negative capacity, just sort of a bit of distance from your own models, a little sense that you're not bound up in your own models, that you don't, you know, that's since that models are always, in some sense, qualified and, and up for debate and change. Yeah. I just think it's a good way to go through the world. And just how to think responsibly about models in society, you know, yeah. to think, think critically and think carefully about what it implies to use these models and to have them as, as important parts of our decision-making procedures, because they are and they're going to stay that way. So we need to right. get used to it and we need to understand how to use them wisely. Right. Good tools, poor masters, as they say about so many things. Yes. And this is what, you know, you, you, you kept 
referencing expert judgment, but I kept coming back again and again throughout the book to the term wisdom, yeah. which is, you know, a little bit fuzzy, but that's exactly what you're talking about. It's just... Yes. Yes, it is. Accumulated good judgment. That's what, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom and values and understanding, you know, having, having leaders, I think, who can embody our values and show wisdom in acting in accordance with those values. I think that's something that we, has kind of gone out of fashion, and I would really like it to see it come back. <laughs> yes. True, true. Uh, well, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on and taking all this time. Uh, I really, uh, as I say, enjoyed the book, and I really... Um, People are always asking me to read climate change books and, you know, like <laughs> 90% of them, I'm like, oh, I know all this. Like, you're just telling me things I know. But I would, I would say if I was going to recommend a climate book to people who already know about climate and are familiar with the science, I would recommend this book because it's just how to think about climate change is one of the most important still, I think, one of the most live and important discussions around climate change is just how do we cognize this? Like, how do we act in the face of this? How do we think about how to act in the face of this? And I think your book is a great guide for that. So thank you. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>